This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Um, it's been a big week in Scottish politics, one of uh, coalition or not, or confidence supply deals or not, um, and various other things going on in the background. Um, thank you very much for joining us once again. Uh, we have Gina Davidson. Gina, how are you? I'm very well, Connor. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. And we also have our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown. Alex, how are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you for having me. You sound it. You sound it. You sound really upbeat. <laughs> I'm just... The thing is... It's not the you know, we need on a Monday morning. I'm on the podcast, ready to talk about the news, but the news is Afghanistan and others. And, you know, when you start with one, the rest is all seems less significant. But let's talk about it. I'm excited. Go <laughs> <Absolutely>. team. <laughs> well, Ooh. there's a couple There's a couple of things we'll, we'll cover. We'll cover... Um, the UK government uh, and the wider kind of foreign policy issues of the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan. Um, and we're also going to talk about um, the deal. Uh, I don't really know what we call it, the cooperation deal, I guess, between the SNP and the Scottish Greens, um, which will see two Green MSPs become ministers um, and a whole host of other consequences. Um, we'll start with that. Gina, you were the one working on Friday. I managed to get a day off when it was announced, so that went well. But uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Imagine being off on that momentous day, Connor. It's a shocker. I know. It's a dreadful, dreadful thing for a reporter to do. But t- take us through the kind of bare bones of, of what was agreed on Friday by the two parties. Well, what was agreed in the Butte House Agreement, I think, was uh, how Nicola Sturgeon described it. Um, it's basically a, a, a deal which sees the Greens uh, in government, which sees them uh, back a shared plan for government. So, But we'll see how much of that makes it through to the the programme for government uh, when Parliament uh, gets back after recess. And as you say, it gives the Greens uh, a couple of ministers, although at the minute we don't know who they are or what roles that they will have uh, in government. And on the flip side, it gives the SNP um, a stable working majority within the parliament, 
the Greens have basically more or less agreed not to, uh, you know, challenge um, the government when there's a if there's a, a a vote of no confidence in any minister, and they will also back the budget and you know that that kind of stuff. So it gives the SNP the kind of stability that it was absolutely missing towards the end of the last parliamentary session, uh, when we did see votes of no confidence in ministers and uh, and possibly. Um, uh, at the time, if you remember, uh, the Conservatives were were hoping to to raise one around Nicola Sturgeon um, in the wake of the the Alex Salmond harassment inquiry report and so on. So you know, for the SNP, they don't have that uh, to worry about anymore, and it gives them what what is being termed a sort of greenwash over their their policies, uh, and in in the year of COP twenty six, and of course. It also, for them, gives them a, a pro-independence majority, which they will now use to say that you know that this UK government can no longer stand in the way of a second independence referendum. In fact, Nicola Sturgeon said it would be a democratic outrage if uh, if Boris Johnson was to continue to refuse uh, when she was announcing the deal last Friday. Although. The reality of that is, of course, he can continue to refuse. So uh, we'll see how how, how that argument uh, pans out over the the coming months and years, um, as uh, independence never really uh, goes away. So that 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 that's where the the deal stands at the minute. And of course, it's still got to be ratified by Green Party members. They've got to approve it um, before it can happen. The SNP's National Executive Committee approved it at the weekend, and they are actually going to do some kind of consultation with members on it as well. But I don't think they get a, a veto over it uh, in the same way as, as the Green Party does. So that's what you missed on Friday. <laughs> a, a dreadful day for uh, for me to miss out on. Um, it's worth, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on the independent stuff first, because I think that is the it's arguably the least interesting aspect of the whole of the whole deal, um, because it was it's highly unexpected. It doesn't really change much um, in terms of the, the the politics of it. But Alex, from a Westminster point of view, what has what has the reaction been in that regard? In that kind of sense of whether or not it changes the independence question, I, I probably can guess. I mean, the question suggests that people in Westminster are looking at what's happened. I don't think anyone. I mean, I'm, I'm not being flippant. I think honestly, I don't think anyone cares. They're all on holiday. I mean, the view is like, congratulations, well done on forming government. It, you took your time. Good. Carry on. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I I, I, my, I don't have any informed analysis because honestly, no, no one. And I have asked. No one is talking about it. I mean, there's been a, a few, you know, pithy tweets going, "Oh, we're working together. What a shame for Scotland." and Ultimately, I think it's the same people just being a bit stroppy, perhaps, that uh, they, they didn't do better. There's been nothing in terms of like what it means for independence, though I would say it's actually bad for independence because it puts more pressure on the First Minister to try and sort a referendum. I think that they are absolutely going to lose if they have one, uh, and in, the, like, in any sorts of short-term sense. So, uh, you know, nothing has, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Theresa May is back, <laughs> um, but do, do, Alex, do you think that the the, the sum who will go that this kind of increases the pressure on you know uh, Boris Johnson to to acquiesce to any potential Section Thirty you know request? There's a lot of people going that you know how can he ignore a parliamentary majority, which this now is, um, and a clear you know agreement between the parties. There's no uh, you know. There's no nebulous 
arrangement between the two. It's very clearly delineated that these two agree on independence and therefore so does the parliament. Um, do, you, do you think that's going to have any impact at all? Because I don't. I'm not convinced that it will. I mean, the idea that anything has an impact on Boris Johnson is firstly absurd. And secondly, I mean, it, I mean, it changes nothing. The idea that they can now, there's more pressure on him. Well, the thing is, the Scottish government don't want to have a referendum. They know that if they have a referendum now, they will lose and they're focusing on the pandemic. And if they suggest or talk about one now, their poll ratings will dip even further because they're talking about it and not focusing on the recovery and not focusing on responding to the pandemic. So, you know, there, there is really no pressure on the prime minister because it's it, the hand's been kicked down the road. I mean, you know, I've had SNP MPs tell me, you know, we don't want to go until we get to, you know, 60 percent. Well, good luck with that. You're never having one. Um, the idea that this agreement just means now the pressure will come. The pressure is not on the prime minister. The pressure will be on the first minister from people within her own party and her own members who desperately want independence uh, to the point they're willing. They, they want it now and they can't wait even when they're less likely to get it now. So, I, you know, I actually, I, I don't think it's bad for the Prime Minister at all because he's, you know, there's a precedent of him, you know, refusing things under extensive political pressure. We can look at any of the ministers to see that. I think what's also quite interesting about that argument is that if you'll remember, if you cast your minds back to, to April, May, when the election campaign was running and we had the um, appearance of the Alpa party uh, led by Alex Salmond, um, and their whole um, campaign was about creating the supermajority of pro-independence MSPs in the Holyrood. And in doing so, that would be, you know, the thing that would tilt Boris Johnson towards uh, granting a second referendum. And Nicholas Sturgeon flat out said it doesn't work like that. And, you know, that that can't possibly be the case because obviously she didn't, she didn't want to lose any support to, to the Alpa party. But now, you know, they're suggesting that because there's a deal with the Greens that, that it does mean that and that, it, you know, that, that, that um, it's a, a democratic situation that can't be ignored by the Prime Minister. So they're kind of <laughs> trying to have their cake and eat it at the same time. Who could ever have thought that about politicians? But, you know, um, it's just, yeah, and, and the numbers aren't different. You know, it's quite easy for Boris Johnson to say, well, nothing's changed. OK, you've got a deal on paper. But even then, it's not real coalition, you know, in the sense that, you um, the, uh, the Lib Dems were completely subsumed by the Cameron Tony government. You know that it's not a coalition in that sense. There are exclusions for the Greens. Um, they can still be in opposition at some point. So uh, maybe that even even that can be used against you know the argument for oh well now you have to have a Section Thirty referendum. So it's yeah I, I, like Alex says it probably is not registering on the radar at all down in Westminster. Of course there are bigger fish to fry at the minute in terms of Afghanistan. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't see it shifting anything. I, I also think there is confidence among Conservative MPs, and, and this is an agreement I might uh, perhaps agree with, in that the longer it goes, the stronger the arguments for unionism will become. Will become. You, can, you can make the point that the Prime Minister is uh, toxic in Scotland and says stupid things because he is toxic in Scotland and he does say stupid things. But with the internal market bill, which, you know, may be dismissed as a power grab, the UK government is going to invest in Scotland and there will be and they're already moving civil servants there. So if the UK government offers, uh, you know, through the internal market bill to invest, I don't know, 10 million or something to build a youth centre or whatever, and the Scottish government says, we're not going to work with you, no, they'll bypass them and go direct to a local authority. So as time goes on and buildings and, you know, 
infrastructure starts popping up with the UK government flag on it. And the reason it took so long was because Scottish government refused to work with them. That will be a, a visible uh, and like, a, you know, a, a sense of investment and involvement from the UK government that you can see that you can touch and that will make people's lives better. And there will be no argument against that from the Scottish government because they would rather look the other way and not have anything to do with it. Is, so that, I think that's- is that not though the same thing that happened with the EU in terms of EU investment in parts of the country that, you know, almost across the board, you know, I'm thinking the Southwest in Cornwall, I'm thinking parts of parts of the North that, that, that relied on direct EU investment and then voted for Brexit. Surely that, that could happen with Scottish independence. Well, the difference is when the EU offered, you know, subsidies to farmers or whatever, the UK government did say, no, thank you. We don't want to work with you. We did that afterwards. We took the money and ran. So I, I, I don't think it really holds up because it's got, it, this, is, this isn't the case of the UK government offering money and then, and then people going, oh, actually, well, they did do it, but we don't care. The Scottish government was going to say no, say no. And then local authorities will say yes. So then the, the, UK, the, the argument will be, oh, well, people on the ground actually want investment and they want involvement and they want unionism and they want to be working together. But the Scottish government refused to and they have delayed this youth centre. They have delayed an improvement to the road. I mean, the Union Connectivity Review, which, you know, is going to, well, is intending to drastically improve uh, infrastructure and travel all over the UK. The Scottish government's, you know, refusing to take part in it and engage with it. You can say, oh, well, the review's rubbish, the UK government's rubbish and it's not done very well. That's fair enough, but to not even engage with it, it, it's all about optics, and that's what people will see, and that's what people will talk about, I think. Going back to the independence question, and I I thought it was interesting, Gene, you mentioned the Alba Party, because essentially what this arrangement with the Greens is, is, as far as I can tell, pretty much what Alex Salmond was trying to sell to the electorate, um, you know, pre-election and and didn't succeed in selling to the electorate whatsoever. Um, so I'm wondering, do, do you think, Gina, that this will backfire on either the SNP or the Greens? One of the big criticisms has been this isn't a coalition or a, uh, or a cooperation deal that we voted for as the Scottish people. That's, that's the Conservative line. Do you think that will stick or do you think that Scots will understand that this is just two parties working together, which is obviously the SNP and the Green view? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that Tory line will stick because, you know, the, the Scottish Parliament is uh, long used to parties having to work together. You know, we had Labour Lib Dem coalitions in the first um, two parliaments and then, you know, we had um, almost a kind of uh, confidence and supply arrangement between the Tories and the SNP when Alex Salmond first became uh, First Minister and so on. So I think people are used to seeing parties work together in the Scottish Parliament and I don't think... I don't think they care so much about that as they care about what's delivered through that partnership. So um, I think there will be a lot of pressure. As with anything, you know, the pressure, uh, as as Alex was suggesting, the pressure um, on both the parties in terms of independence will come from within their own ranks. And it'll also probably come from those that have already left and joined the Alpa party who are are demanding things happen faster. Um, But that's where that pressure, I think, will come from rather than from the wider public. The wider public more so might be saying, right, well, so what does this mean for local government finance, right? So, you know, if the Greens who say that they have made gains in the last few years but for councils uh, through the budget negotiations, 
if they are now in government, they don't have that lever. So, you know, will they be able to produce anything better for councils? It's a council election next year, you know, so that could be held against them. Um, what about roads and transport? Interesting that, that Alex mentions um, the UK review um, on interconnectivity because, you know, the Greens absolutely do not want road building in Scotland. The SNP have already committed to duelling the A9. So, I mean, I don't think there, there's any chance of that stopping. But there are other things like the A96 between Aberdeen and Inverness. The people who voted SNP up there, they probably want that road. <laughs> you know, I don't know that they'll be happy if that stops because of this deal. And that might, again, also play out in next year's council elections, where the Greens would probably quite rightly have, given their election results in May, have been hoping to make further gains because they've been doing quite well in, in local authorities recently. So um, I think, yeah, the risks around this are with the junior partner, as always, um, and the SNP, kind of no matter what, because we've seen that even in this last election, no matter what, in terms of their domestic record, they just continue to sail on. So if there's any uh, kickback, it'll be on what this deal actually delivers for people on the ground or doesn't deliver, what the Greens stop the SNP from delivering and how that then um, impacts people at the council elections next year. It'll be an interesting one, the council elections, because I, I think there's a there's a real potential next year for potential green gains, um, especially in cities like Edinburgh. You look at, you look at the 2017 election, for example, um, and the Greens did relatively well, but we're still probably third or fourth um, on in hitting quotas when it came to, to getting elected. Um, it's I, I think it's probably more likely than ever, especially in the year of the IPCC report, or at least next year will be six or seven months on, and also in the year of COP26. And as climate change becomes more and more of a part of, you know, re- genuine like daily discussion within government and within policy, that the Greens make, continue to make gains. Um, their strength, for example, at, 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 in May in in some of the big cities was was quite impressive. And if you look at how they do in England, they've obviously grown massively in councils around there, but they position themselves very cleverly um, to a local audience or as almost green Tories. That's probably the best way I can put it. Um, if you look, my old patch, this is going back <laughs> a couple of years now, but I used to cover um, East Suffolk Um which is blue heartland Tory um, and yet turned green in many places um, during the council elections this year um, due to strong on the ground work. And I think that that will potentially um, happen up here. Um, I suppose the, the follow-up question to that, Gina, is what, what, are, the, what are the risks to the SNP from this? Do, do you think that they are going to succeed in passing on the buck because that, that that's that's one argument that as to why they've gone into this um or do you think that there's there's, there's other potential risks for them i think um I think what we shouldn't forget is that the SNP are traditionally a kind. It's interesting you, you talk about the green green Tories of down south. That's an, an interesting insight, uh, Connor. I, I hadn't been aware of, but I think um, the SNP are traditionally quite small c conservative centre-right party. That has changed, obviously, you know, in the last few years and, and particularly under Nicola Sturgeon and since the, the 2014 <coughs> referendum. 
But there is still that core, and especially like the northeast of Scotland, you know, where there's a lot of reliance on um, jobs in the oil and gas industry. Um, it's a bit of the, you know, it's the SNP heartland area. So if um, if they are seen to move too far or become too radical, to use the, the word of the moment, um, around the, the economy and growth and jobs, um, you know, they, they could find themselves losing support, I suppose, in, in very particular areas like that. Um, farming as well, you know, um, the Greens will want to have a, a big say about um, farming methods and, and so on. You know, will farmers who maybe traditionally SNP voters go along with that? Same in the, in, in the fishing industry, you know, um, there's a lot of concern about um, what the Greens are, are going to do uh, or want to do around fish farms. And then there's the a kind of hunting shooting brigade who are mostly, let's say, traditionally Tories, but you know have I think flirted in the past with with the SNP when it was more a, a centre right party. So again, you know, it's interesting that some of those things are in the exclusions that have been worked out. I think the SNP are, are very aware that these are areas where they could uh, come a cropper if they are seen to be pulled too far in one direction by the Greens. So um, while the exclusions um, have maybe been seen as being to the benefit of the Green Party, I think they're probably also to the benefit of the SNP. It was it was notable, wasn't it? Actually, that field sports, i.e., you know, grass shooting and and, mm. and things like that, were weren't in in the agreement as areas to work on, especially given the extremely strong calls for reform from the Green Party, especially over grass shooting um, over the last few years, and that yeah. yet that that didn't find its way in there. Um, no. In any and also, meaningful sense. Exactly. And also, you know, there was a bill that was going to be brought forward to close loopholes around fox hunting. For instance, Alison Johnson was going to do that. She is now presiding officer of Holyrood, so won't be doing that. And I think expected that to be taken up by somebody else within the Green Group. It could well still be done, obviously, um, because it is an excluded area. But that will definitely see the two uh, parties in the deal um, at odds with each other. Well, who who do you think the deal revealed more about in terms of which party is, you know, in the sense of, I, I don't know, you know how these, these deals can often kind of be quite revealing in what they exclude and what they include. Which which party gave more away, maybe, is, is the way of putting it in terms of what they really, truly stand for? I think... I think when it all, when you boil right down to it, the Greens will be the ones that have given the most away. I mean, you can read that 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 deal and think, oh, they've pushed the SNP quite far on certain things, or they seem to have, or they could still do if they're if they're in government together. But you just cannot get away from the fact that if there's a lack of delivery, especially around the climate, as you you say, you know, um, more and more people are obviously, you know absolutely um, deciding to vote on climate issues now um, than maybe they had been in the past, even if they were concerned about it. And the Greens would be the obvious uh, party to go with. But, you know, the SNP government has failed on its targets around emissions and so on uh, uh, consistently. Um, and if the, if the Greens are now part of a government that fails on those things, then... You know, I think for, for a lot of people that would be seen as an absolute failure of what they're all about. So um, I think when it comes down to it, it doesn't really matter, I think, uh, uh, in terms of what the deal says or it doesn't say it'll be that 
that um, is, is the riskiest thing for the Greens at the end of the day, and they are the ones that could lose the most. Well, obviously, it's 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 the first time a UK Green Party has been in any sort of form of government. That, that's a, a big step forward for the Green movement in, in the UK. And Alex, interesting, interested to know, there's been lots of talk and I do. I really do mean talk about, you know, when will the Greens make that next step and push the Lib Dems down, um, especially, you know, just making winning a second MP, for example, down south. Um, do you think that we could see a similar move towards green politics in, in England or is the voting system and just the, the, the simple nature of Westminster always going to hamstring the, the, the English Greens, essentially? Uh, I would say they haven't got a chance whatsoever. Uh, I mean, you know, the Greens, they're, they're good at getting council seats. Um, they do pretty well in, in, lo- in local elections uh, in England. They came, the, the Green candidate came second, well, not second, but, you know, came behind um, the Tory and Labour candidate for London mayor. Um, beating the Lib Dems, which was significant, though I think the Lib Dem campaign wasn't necessarily the best. But, you know, the, the Lib Dems are actually, and I know this seems laughable, they're actually in, in pre- pretty good place in, in the South. I, I know that they're not maybe represented in the way they were, but they're winning council seats back. And traditionally, that's the way the Lib Dems take seats. They get councils, they're good at local government, and then people vote for them because they're good you know, on the patch. No, they haven't ha- they haven't got the same coalition of voters, you know, where traditionally Labour had, you know, working class and the Tories have the, you know, the, the farmers and those with money. And it's and it, they don't really have that, co- they didn't really have that core support. I know those things are changing, but they are, I think they're second in an astonishing amount of seats uh, in, 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 the, in the UK. I think, so I think they'll take considerably more, whereas the Greens are, are almost nowhere to be, nowhere to be seen. That, that there isn't the funding, there isn't the, there isn't the approach. I mean, you know, England's a small C conservative country. And if you are someone who doesn't want to be tax loads, um, but does believe in progressive policies, you know, maybe is kind of pro-interventionist and pro doing a little bit more internationally, and you're upset with Brexit, there's a lot more of you than there are of people who want to vote the Greens and, you know, get the compost in. So I, I, I would say absolutely no chance whatsoever. Um, so I look forward to them getting two or three in the next general election, which will be, which, which is so far off. Thankfully, no one will remember I said this. <laughs> it's all right, Alex. I'll, I'll hold you to that um, in uh, twenty twenty four or whenever we get the next election. Um, it's, I think it's worth briefly touching on the impact of this deal on the machinations of Hollywood, Gina. You know, we, we, as you mentioned earlier on, it's 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 worth remembering quite you know just how bitter and fraught the last six months of the Holyrood um, session were in the run-up to the May election. You know, we plenty of no-confidence votes, um, and the, the tone of debate became quite vicious in the way that it was going about. And it's also worth saying that the, the Conservative Party got very good at using the fact that there was genuine upset with the way the SNP were, were running Holyrood to push those kind of you know, votes about education and about, you know, John Swinney's approach to the Salmon Inquiry and education to um, the point of no return often for the, for, for the, for the SNP, at least, or at least to, to get a response. Do you think that this deal will neuter that approach from the Scottish Tories in a way that, you know, they really did get a lot of political capital out of in the last six, six months to a year? 
yeah, I think, I mean, they'll have to re rethink um, that idea. But then at the same time, it's a new parliament. I can't imagine that they were going to come back after the summer recess and immediately demand votes of no confidence in, in ministers. Um, although who knows? I mean, they might just go hell for leather and say they'll have one each week you know, <laughs> until, they, until they can try and bring down the government. But no, I mean, it's just... Um, I think, you know, they will be waiting to see how this plays out. I mean, obviously, they've already um, made a, a representation to the presiding officer to remove the Greens' um, automatic question at First Minister's questions each week because they are now part of the government and their argument is that, you know, they are no longer an opposition party and should not be in a position where they're supposed to be holding the the, the First Minister to account uh, with a question or you know, if we allow them to carry on doing so, it'll be kind of softball questions. They normally come from the SNP backbenches, you know, but um, but they will come from the front bench of of, of the Greens. So, they, you know, they might well have a point there. It'd be interesting to see what Alison Johnson decides. Um, and then, although I don't think that would mean automatically that Alex Cole Hamilton gets a, a shoe in at First Minister's questions as a replacement, I think I think they're still out of the game just with their four <laughs> MSPs. So, yeah, so. The Conservatives have already um, drawn a line in the sand around FMQs, but I think they uh, they can't keep hammering on the the you know the door of no confidence. So we've got a whole we've got a new cabinet in place as well. So you know they'll need to wait and see how they perform, um, and also ultimately, unless unless they're raising it in an in an area where the Greens are allowed to to be in opposition, then they're not going to get. The support, so it's it's pointless, you know. And then it is just all gesture politics, and really, what I think we've had enough of those. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. it's, it's touch on Scottish Labour as well um, in in regards to this, because I think my my personal argument, and I'll make this point in the Scotsman this today when this podcast goes out, but I I think that this is the this deal really does test or really will test Anasawa's ability to build, you know, what he was talking about prior to the election in terms of a credible alternative to to the to the SNP. Um, given that a lot of what is in this deal um with with the two parties is probably something that that Scottish Labour voters will or would have signed up for. And arguably, as you said earlier, Gina, um what matters in terms of delivery is what voters will see. And if the S, if the if this deal brings through, you know, rent controls, for example, in Edinburgh and Glasgow, it could easily neuter um, some of the Scottish Labour vote in in the next election. But do you, do you think that he has Anasawa that is he has a a battle on his hands here? Do you think he can still? Do you think the Venn diagram of, of voters that fit Scottish Labour who currently you know vote the SNP and Greens and are willing to switch over is enough? to bring Labour back into a position of real challenge? If I was in his shoes, you would be placing the Greens squarely as a new SNP, only interested in the constitution. That's why they're there. That's what they're all about. It doesn't matter what anybody else is saying. So is that what you want? Or do you want a party that's focusing on the COVID recovery, which is, you know, which is where he was in the in election campaign. So I think, I think that's what he will potentially do. Um, things like rent controls. Now that's been a Labour Party policy. For, for some time. I mean, if it happens, and I'd actually be quite surprised if it happens, despite all the rhetoric, um, then Labour could quite possibly 
well, they would vote for it, I'm sure, and they would quite possibly say, you know, that's us. We've helped to push the government in that direction as well. You know, the same kind of language that the Greens used to use around around budget um, times. Um, I think what's interesting is, um, for me, reading the deal, the the big, one of the big things that was missing was, um, you know, an immediate rise to the Scottish Child Payment. Now, that's something that, um, you know, a lot of people have been, uh, demanding not just politicians, but you know, civic organisations and charities and people that are dealing with um, um, with those with the lowest incomes. And you know, the, the Scottish Child Payment is in place. The the government has said yes, we'll double it over the course of the rest of the Parliament. And people saying, well, that's too slow. We need to do it now. And the Greens used to be on board with that, as far as I recall. And that seems to have that's definitely not in the, in the agreement. So I think you know, it'd be those kind of things that Labour will probably pick up. And, and run with and, and try and hammer uh, the Greens. They'll probably basically try and hammer the Greens as being not as left of centre as they make themselves out to be because they've gone into government with the SNP, who the Labour have always said is not as left of centre as it, um, as they like to make out as well. So uh, I think these these kind of things will will focus Labour's minds and they'll see where precisely they can they can pick out because, um, like you say, there's a lot of um, a lot of policy areas. Where they all overlap, so it's you know it's not always easy to to um, to see where the division lies, but there will be some like Scottish Child Payment where I think Labour will will pick up and run with. Is there any risk the Greens get Lib Demmed? Like with stuff like camp with like the Cambo oil field, which the first minister has offered absolutely no opposition to and almost delegated opposing, but really they're all for. Uh, that's a huge. It's a huge difference. I mean, is there, is there any risk that they just, the Greens have to basically swallow their pride and go, you know what, compromise is not betrayal, but find out the voters think differently? Yeah, I think it's interesting, the Campbell thing, because um, never have two parties who are so pro-independence been so um, at pains to say this is a reserved issue, we can't do anything about it. Um, and that is not a stance that I would have thought the Greens would ever take on anything yeah. to do um, around oil and gas. So while Patrick Harvey, I think, is re- being reported today as saying the Greens have pushed Nicola Sturgeon into the position where she wrote that letter to Boris Johnson asking for a review in the light of the crime- <laughs> climate crisis, it's a bit like, yeah, but, you know, again, where's the delivery? There is no delivery on that. Boris Johnson who, again, will say, well, it's nothing to do with me, it's to do with oil and gas, uh, you know, regulators, they'll decide, they'll make the decision at the end of the day, but, and then possibly might even come out just before COP26 and say, no, we're not going to do it, and and he'll look great. Um, and I just think the Greens, yeah, it, it, the, the Campbell thing could be a real issue for them, uh, with their membership more than anything. I think I think a really good cautionary tale, um, Alex, in, in regards to that approach, from the Greens is uh, is the Irish Greens who went into coalition with, you know, the two biggest centre right parties in in Irish politics and have suffered no end in the polls um, since due to the fact that they kept selling out is the phrase you often see on social media, but kept you know dropping key climate ple- pledges along the way in order to keep the government in power. Um, We've you've seen green green TDs, you know, um, threatened to resign. You've had ministers being being barracked by members, for example, in Ireland. Um, and it's worth remembering that the Irish Greens had such a gigantic jump in support at the last election that should they lose that, they'll probably lose plenty of their their pulling power. Um, 
if the Scottish Greens go along the same line and don't, you know, don't have clear red lines with which to to go to talk to the SNP about, I think there's a real risk that the same will happen here. Um, I don't think it's quite the same as doing the Lib Dems because I think the so much of the Lib Dem support was was tied up in 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 younger students who were expecting them to to keep their pledges around tuition fees etc but i think i think the the greens really need to be aware of the risk to be of, of being seen to hold their central pledges i think it's it's any of those central tenants of green politics if that if that gets you know um questioned by the membership i think they're in real trouble I mean, how much forward. of a difference? How much of a difference, though, realistically, is there between you know saying that you'll get registration fees and tripling them, or saying you're going to stop the climate emergency and then doing nothing while the government has an oil field that's going to be going until 2050 and building roads that you directly oppose? I mean, it will all be about optics, but you know they've they just ignored it. They're, everyone cares about the environment and it affects them in their day to day or their chances of career progression. It, I think I think the the road building is a is a fantastic example of something that could come back to hurt the Greens in the long run. Um, I think it really uh, so much of this really genuinely does depend on what actually happens versus what has been kind of agreed in this deal, and also what's in the program for government. You know, Ginny, you mentioned the Scottish child payment. There's there's no there's there's a perfect possibility that that is doubled you know, very soon and is announced next week when we hear from, from Nicola Sturgeon on Tuesday in, in Holyrood, <laughs> which would be fantastic for, yeah. for many folk. Um, and I, I think I think you're right to a certain extent, Alex, in the sense that the Scottish Green approach is going to have to become more nuanced for them politically. They can't, they can no longer bang that drum to the same extent that they did when they were in opposition. And I think they're going to find that really hard. And I think that's going to be a harder sell to the membership than they might realise. I think I think absolutely that that is true, and I think um, I don't know if you saw Connor. But we had Robin Harper write for the paper on on Friday um, about the deal, and and his focus was very much on the environmental issues, and and he was obviously concerned that they were going to go by the by through this deal. And I mean, he's somebody who's obviously been involved in green politics for an, an exceedingly long time. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if there are a lot of people within the party that have the same, the same fears about it. Um, it it's this idea of they're basically providing a kind of green cover for the SNP in the year of, of COP26 and, um, uh, and yeah, and the risks are with them. You know, the risks are that they will will, will come off worse if they are not seen to actually deliver on any of, of their own green policies. It depends also where the ministers that they get, where they go within the government. If they will be in the net zero team, then possibly, you know, they will have a bit of influence about what the government's going to do. But I think we should never forget the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon. You know, they are incredibly um, controlling political party controlling government and even although they have entered into this deal I don't think they will allow themselves to be suddenly controlled by the Greens. I, I do think it's worth mentioning though uh, the UN said that the climate catastrophe date is 2030 right we have you know from now <laughs> we don't have very long to stem the tide and the Greens going into a, a deal with a party who want who will allow the Campbell oil field that runs till 2050. 
I know in my in my um, interview with Lorna Slater uh, in the March Love video series uh, on the on the Holly Road, uh, she said, you know, we need radical change now. We, we can't the next government. We have two governments left before catastrophe, and there will be no radical change. Yeah, it's interesting because Lorna, Lorna Slater is one of the names that's being mentioned as p- being potentially a minister, and um, which would be remarkable given that she wasn't even a politician, you know, a few months ago, and now all of a sudden she's she's going to be in government. But I think that there's a kind of double edged sword there. I think it'd be quite good not having a normal politician who's been kind of ground down by years of um, being in Holyrood. Uh, being in the government and, and making waves, you know, asking questions about everything and demanding, you know, that more more is done. But at the same time, you know, people like that sometimes, you know, she for her own kind of principle stand, if she isn't, if she feels that she can't do what she wants to do when she's in there because of the machine, <laughs> then yeah. um, how long how long will she remain there? You know, would she would she yeah. be then say right, well, no, to hell with this, we need to you know, go back to the opposition benches and and shout about what we need to shout about from over here because actually, even although we're in government, we can't change anything. And I think as well, Alex, it's worth saying that the, the green argument in response to that point of, you know, 2030 is around the corner and that that's the end of it. Well, this was said to me by, by Green Source, you know, a, a week before the, the agreement was signed was, you know, the logic that they are, or maybe the spin, however you might want to to, to sell it, is that they're going to make more change in government than they will on the opposition benches. And therefore, it's a sell to That's their exactly membership the on that. Said. That's exactly yeah. what the Dems said. Exactly. But it's a sell to their membership on that basis of yeah. the climate crisis is so key that we are willing to give up X, Y, Z in policy in order to make gains in key places that the SNP would otherwise not make. Now, whether that happens or whether that has any basis in reality to how the SNP are going to act in the next five years is what we're going to watch, I think, um, you know, in the run-up to the next general election, potentially yeah. an independence referendum in the next Hollywood election. Yeah. I, we'll talk about Afghanistan shortly because it's worth covering, especially the UK government's response to it and the ongoing Dominic Raab controversy. But before we get there, Gina, I have one question for you. Um, and I'd like two two small answers. Alex, you, you got, you're going to get the same question, so don't think you're getting away with it. One, will the SNP Green deal last the duration of Holyrood? And two, how many MSPs will the Greens get at the next election after it? Gina, you first. No, and five. Alex? Uh, no. I, I just, I just don't know. I, I, I have no, I have no real idea. Not, not like in a, I can't work it out. I just don't know enough to really make an informed guess compared, compared to the two of you. Um, four and a half. Four and a half. Fantastic. That's it. Alison Johnson returned as presiding officer then. Um, and uh, what do you I'm think, gonna Connor? Go, I'm going to go with yes and ten, just to be mm. contrary. If anything else. Uh, no, You've just got a much sunnier outlook to life, I think, in general. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still young, Gina. I'm still yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> so we think them being uh, working with the with the SNP won't that won't help Labour enough to take many of them. That's what we we think. We think that. So we're saying essentially it'll break up, but not break up badly enough. That's well, what I, that's what you two are saying. I'm saying it will work. I think it, I don't actually think it will change anything, and I think the Greens. We'll just get an extra couple of MSPs, which they're about 
5,000 votes away from getting in. Oh, in Connor, you, you beautiful, young, sweet optimist. Everything <laughs> <is> fine. <laughs> it's fascinating, though, the, um, the uh, you know, the, the machinations of the Holyrood uh, elections and you look at the Greens who have got um, more MSPs than they did the last time, but only eight, you know, and... Uh, and got what two hundred fifty four thousand votes there and or thereabout, and there's the the poor Lib Dems who've got four MSPs but got something like three hundred and what forty thousand twenty thousand. Oh goodness, sorry, my maths isn't great this time of the morning. Um, I can't remember the last time I looked at the figures, but uh, and you think, oh, poor Lib Dems, they're just you know all those votes and four MSPs to show for it, and certainly not an a, offer to go into government. They've got a fighting fit new leader now, though, haven't they? Oh, they um, have. Pictured in the gym. <laughs> well, he's going to have to go some way to beat Willie Rennie's photo calls, that's for sure. Skydive. That's that's the only thing that will beat it, I think. Oh, no, for because right, then it's Lib Dem, you know, Lib Dem polls plummeting, <laughs> support, <laughs> support falling. But Willie Rennie did go micro-light gliding or something, yeah. did he not? Just he the day before the election, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and didn't Sky's it Sky's the limit. Well? <laughs> anyway, let's 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 move on to uh, slightly more serious topics. Um, Alex, <laughs> you, you, you've you've been following this uh, quite closely over the last week, um, which is obviously the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan. Um, what's the political fallout from the last last few days? Um, well, really, there's just no impact whatsoever. Um, the you know the, the US withdrew. Uh, President Biden didn't really consult with NATO or the UK government beforehand, uh, and we have essentially abandoned uh, the Afghan people to the Taliban. Um, Dominic Raab was staying in a five-star hotel on holiday. He was like, then the Downing Street were like, "Hey, maybe you should come back," and he was like, "Whoa!" And they were like, "Okay, stay a few more days." There was a phone call he could have made to. His Afghan counterpart, which was crucial to help get interpreters out of the country, these interpreters who have held Britain for the past 20 years, he was like, nah, I'm too busy on holiday with my cocktails. That's not a verbatim quote, but he did, was too busy. And so he delegated to someone else, and then that person was like, sure, and then they didn't do it either. So the phone call just wasn't made. Uh, but Downing Street has full confidence in Mr. In Mr. Raab. He issued a statement, uh, I know, lamenting the mis the misreporting. Uh, and in the statement, he did not deny a single thing that was reported, and basically was just having a bit of a huff. We've seen uh, several other members of the cabinet go on about what a workaholic he is and how he works harder than anyone else. But that's really great. It's so good that he works really hard. But also, he's like that's anecdotal. I mean, there's one thing he had to do, and he didn't do it. Uh, the UK government is now talking about taking an additional 20,000 Afghan refugees, which um, is great. But when you think about the fact that we offer to take 5 million from Hong Kong, um, and all this, also it's capped at 5,000 a year. So if you're one of the unlucky few, what are you supposed to do as the Taliban, you know, kill people and make women second class citizens? You're just supposed to survive and wait and hope you're part of this magical lottery to come next time. It is a horrendous uh, dereliction of duty uh, across the board. And we're now at the point where we're going to have to, where, you know, the prime minister is going to ask Joe Biden to kind of, uh, to basically then ask the Taliban if we can extend the deadline because August 31 was the deadline for getting everybody out. Uh, so we are asking the Taliban who, lest we forget, are a murderous cult. Um, if we can, please, uh, please, can we have a bit more time so that you can kill less people? I mean, it's absolutely pathetic 
uh, and deeply depressing. And Joe Biden was supposed to be this, you know, this great hope, the return to being leader of the free world. Uh, and it is disastrous. I mean, even, you know, the backbench MPs, you know, who so often were either hesitant to criticize the US administration because, oh, well, you know, our friends and allies and, oh, how dare Corbyn do that? Because, you know, they're our greatest partners. Everyone was coming out swinging for uh, in Westminster. So it's just um, a really miserable thing to be writing about, a, a, a horrendous experience for these people to be living. Um, yeah, compl- no, but there will be no there will be no repercussions um, for, for the UK government whatsoever. We will just see people die. What is um, obviously we've heard that as you mentioned with Dominic Raab, um, calls I think from both the SNP and the Labour Party for him to either resign or be sacked by Boris Johnson. That doesn't seem to be happening. There's a there's you know considerations of a I think it's post COP twenty six, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, of of a post COP twenty six reshuffle, um, where he might be shifted into the holy grey grail of uh, failed ministerial posts, which is the justice brief. Um and that will just sort the problem. In, in in a UK sense, how damaging has this been for Boris Johnson and you know Dominic Raab in particular? Well, I'm not sure how damaging it's been for for Mr. Raab. I mean, uh, Tory MPs are very angry with him. Apparently, the the anger towards Biden is uh, yeah, I, I say second only to the anger towards Biden. Really, uh, there is a sense that perhaps in his time as deputising for the Prime Minister, he became, when the Prime Minister was sick. He became somewhat of a control freak, according to reports, and so has struggled to let go and now wants to handle everything, though obviously not phone calls on holiday. So, uh, I, and the, I mean, the polling was already moving towards the Labour Party. The Labour Party were already making gains of support. Keir, so Keir Starmer is considerably more popular than Twitter would have you believe. And I think they're now within, well, they're within 1% of a poll um, over the weekend, which, you know, they're still behind, but they've been behind for... I think it's 150-odd something consecutive polls that the Tories have had a lead on. So, you know, uh, it's it's progress. Uh, but I w- but as for the possibility of it being a sacking, no one gets sacked anymore. Uh, even when Matt Hancock breached his own coronavirus restrictions uh, to, you know, to have an affair, having previously called, you know, suggested that Professor Neil Ferguson, the police should maybe look into him doing the same. Uh, didn't you know? Wasn't sacked. He was resigned. So he resigned. Uh, so you know, it's really awful. It's really damning. But ultimately, no one cares. Even even yesterday, the reports of the Home Office were leaving Afghan children without any support. And instead of refuting any of the individual claims, the Home Office just shared the story, going, "This is littered with inaccuracies. It is. We're at the gaslighting stage of the response to criticism because." their Teflon and nothing hurts them. What um, do we think? Was, I speak to a former MP last week about about all of this and how, you know, they, they called it, uh, you know, one of the biggest foreign policy failures um, of, you know, m- many, many decades um, and one that will define Joe Biden's presidency in the US. Um, but they also made, made an interesting point that, it also offers a bit of a cultural reset in terms of how the West approaches foreign policy post-Trump um, and maybe a, a requires the West to have a fresh look at how it deals with, with the Middle East and, and its allies. 
Um, do, do, do you see that changing anything in terms of, do you think that's true? Do you think that's how, you know, MPs want to look at it now and, and look at look at foreign policy through less of a terrifying uh, Trumpist kind of lens? Well, I don't think they were looking at it through a terrifying Trumpist lens. I think they were look at, they're looking at Afghanistan in the sense that we've been there for 20 years. We've helped help the government, helped improve standards for, for women, for education, um, improve quality, uh, and made people's lives better. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, we're there because we're terrified of uh, the Afghanistan people. I mean, it was like the US had 2,500 troops there. That's all, that's all it was needed to keep it safe. They have 25,000 in South Korea. Um, leaving, if anything, makes things more dangerous because there is a you know, stronger chance of terror attacks now from the area. That's now something that the international community will have to work on. Uh, but by leaving, you know, you, you get somewhere relatively safe. There hadn't been a US uh, death in, in Afghanistan for 18 months. Um, in the past 20 years, there have been 70,000 uh, deaths of the local military who Joe Biden said were cowards or whatever, and, you know, not brave enough to fight. So, I would say it was not going to change people's perception because it's not about this isn't really about Trump, but it will change, I think, the perception of what America is and what we as the West can do. Because if he's no longer willing to risk American lives to make other people, you know, to, you know, I don't say, you know, US world police or whatever. But I think there is an element to that, that we will not be so interventionist. And if there are states that are killing their own people, uh, you know, taking away women's rights, we will look the other way. And we've done, you know, the UK has done that a little bit on China um, for trade purposes and for business. So I just think it's, uh, you know, a loss of moral compass and let, just letting, letting these people do awful things. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's, more, it's not just the loss of the moral compass, but it's this kind of retreat into, you know, uh, US isolation, uh, isolationism politics. And, I, you know, which has obviously started under... Donald Trump, and unless it was to do with uh, striking business deals, and is continuing under Joe Biden. And I think so many people who thought Biden was Obama, uh, Mark II, are you know sadly, sadly disappointed um, as a result of what's happened in Afghanistan. And 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 yes, you can understand that you know no U.S. president wants to see um, his own troops being killed in, if he thinks it's unnecessary. But, you know, I think there have been very few, you know, deaths of, of soldiers, of US soldiers in, in recent years in Afghanistan. I think the, 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 the most people that have been dying in Afghanistan are, are, are Afghans, you know, even even still. So I think to remove the, the few troops that were there and to, let, to allow it to descend into this kind of chaos, I think the minute they said there was any kind of timetable and that there was an end date for when they were going to be there, it just allowed the Taliban to plan for this to happen and I think you know the the, the quotes that have um, come out from Joe Biden in, in terms of his views on being in Afghanistan not just just now but you know in past years have actually been quite horrific and I think you know people have have not really known who he is or what his views were on this before he was before he was elected um in the way that he was heralded as, as this great uh you know, great anti-Trump president because, you know, he basically said that, you know, the, the women and the children who have been rescued from the Taliban by the presence of NATO troops over the last 20 years can just, you know, well, I won't repeat the words he used, but I just, it, it's 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 absolutely appalling. And I think um, there are a lot of 
women in the US who are, are looking at him, you know, in a in a very different fashion as a result of of his statements and, and, and the actions and and the mess that they've left behind. Absolutely. Well, it's it's a dreadful scene, and I'm sure we'll sadly continue to see um, pictures, images, videos like the ones that we've seen over the last few weeks emerge from from Afghanistan and and you know that really tell the tragedy of of, of, of the situation. Um, but th- thank you both for for joining joining us as always on the Steamy, um, and thank you very much for listening at home. The Steamy a laudable production for the Scotsman.